And tonight we're in Genesis chapter 4. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. You guys enjoying Genesis so far? Such a good book. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. Uh, Thank you that you're the creator. And so many huge truths that are laid out for us in this book. And we see Jesus so clearly in the book of Genesis as well. God, I'm sure it's been a busy day for for most. We want to come and be still and know that you're God. We invite you to pour out your spirit upon our time together, that you would lead us and guide us in truth, that you, Father, would be glorified, that you'd do heart change uh, inside of us. And we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Cain committing murder, committing homicide of his brother Abel is the center stage of this chapter. We see this first family, Adam and Eve, In their beginnings as a couple, so good, God creating them, giving them the garden, fellowship with God. But then Adam and Eve's sin enter in, and because of that, they have to leave the Garden of Eden, leave that fellowship with God. We're introduced to their first uh, two sons, Cain and Abel, and such high expectations for these two, but yet we see it ending with murder. And thankfully, at the end of this chapter, we see God's heart for uh, redemption, but it also does expose the reality of violence. We live in a culture that is filled with violence, don't we? We see the loss of life in the city of Chicago, just in the city limits of Chicago, the amount of people that are are murdered every year. We see how our own community is becoming more and more violent. You have murders of completely innocent people. I remember being in my first year of college and there was a school shooting in Oregon and that was the first that I really remembered that was up close and personal. Uh, For Colorado, it was Columbine and now that that's become all too common, hasn't it, for there to be a a shooting at a school and in some of these mass shootings, they don't even know the person that they're killing. But to be so upset and to be so enraged to decide I'm just going to kill and I'm going to kill innocent people. But then also there's the murder of family members. Unfortunately, uh, we see you know, parents killing their own children. We see children killing their own, own parents. And it's hard to, to make sense of this all. And we think it's a new problem, don't we? We go, man, this violence has to be new, but then we open up the Bible to the very first family and we see the worst domestic violence that is described. This chapter really shows us we need a savior. From the very get-go, we need a savior. Cain was born with a sin nature. Abel was born with a sin nature. Abel chose one path, Cain chooses another. And so we learn a lot about our need for Christ in this chapter. Verse 1, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I've acquired a male child from the Lord. Some time has gone on from them leaving the Garden of Eden because of their sin, and God blesses them with a child. Eve gives birth, and it's a boy, and they're so excited and say, I have acquired a man from the Lord. It seems that they believe that they've received the promise of, that was given to them in chapter 3, verse 15. Look back with me one chapter, chapter 3, verse 15. God's speaking to Eve. 
says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So Eve believed that Cain was the fulfillment of this messianic prophecy, that Cain would be the one that would allow them to be released from the dominion of, of Satan. So when a child's born, isn't there so much anticipation? Isn't it such a, a time of joy? You can't help but think of the future and the things that God would have in store for them. Verse 2, then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Interesting, Abel's name means empty or vanity, similar to what we're going through on Ecclesiastes. So by the time Eve gets to her second son, she's in essence saying, this is not all that I thought it was going to be. This is not all that it was cracked up to be. She's probably already experienced that little Cain has a sinful nature. That little Cain has a, a will of his own, and this is more difficult maybe than she thought. And so Abel's born, and she's like, well, this, your name is going to be empty. Your name is going to be uh, vanity. Thankfully, Abel rises above his name. Church, you can rise above your name, right? Maybe you look at the meaning of your name, it's not so great, or... Your family always ridiculed you or put you down. In Christ, we can definitely rise above our name. Verse three, and in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. Cain goes the way of his father. He goes in the direction of taking care of the ground to be a farmer but then Abel goes the way of being the keeper of the sheep. It comes time for them to bring offering to God, to bring their, their sacrifice to the altar. So Abel, he brings the firstborn of his flock. Notice that he brings his best to God. Cain brings an offering to God, but it doesn't say that it's his first fruits. It doesn't say that it's the best of his offering. Now here's God's response to their offering. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So why did God not respect Cain's offering? Some look at this and they go, well, it's because Cain, he brought fruit to the Lord instead of bringing an animal uh, to the Lord. It is possible that God had instructed them that they had to bring an animal sacrifice uh, for sin. We don't have that recorded for us in scripture, but it is possible. God killed an animal in last week's study to cover Adam and Eve's sin. We know in the book of Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there's no uh, remission of sin. So it's possible that God had said, look, don't bring fruit, but I want you to bring an animal. But what we do know absolutely from scripture that we can say emphatically is that Abel brought his sacrifice in faith. In Hebrews 11.4, write this down, maybe look it up later. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifies of his, of his gifts, and though it, he being dead, still speaks. So Abel's offering was made through faith. And because it was made through faith, God honored it and labeled Abel as being righteous 
and shows us that his gift, his sacrifice, is something that should be looked up to and followed. His offering was was respected by God because it was offered in faith. So Cain, his real problem is the way he offered to God. He did not offer it in faith. He wasn't offering it in trust and dependency upon God. Though he may not have been offering an animal, and that was maybe part of the difficulty, absolutely, there's something wrong with his heart. There's something wrong with his attitude. And so God addresses that. We see in Jude 11, the small postcard of epistle, it says a warning to not go the way of Cain. God wants us to learn from Cain's example, learn from Abel's example, and to not follow the path of Cain. And the first thing that we see with Cain is that when it comes to his worship, when it comes to his sacrifice before God, there was problems in his heart. There was a lack of faith. And so God calls him out on it, and God doesn't respect his offering. The response of Cain is one that he's very angry. Interesting response when God doesn't respect his offering. Could there have been another response? There could have been one of wondering why from a true heart of wanting to grow. Saying, God, well, why didn't you respect my offering? Well, what's wrong in my heart that would cause you to say, this offering is not valuable to me? But all of a sudden, he wells up with anger, and he's very angry at God. He's very upset with God that God would not accept his, his offering. And then with that, it's interesting that his countenance fell. So he gets angry and he gets depressed. He gets angry and he gets discouraged. This is the first time that discouragement is mentioned in the scripture and it's linked to, to anger. I don't know about you, but it seems like anger and discouragement are often bedfellows. You know what I'm saying? If I lose my temper and I, I get angry, then what seems to follow after that is discouragement or, or despair if I don't get my eyes upon the Lord. So he falls into this anger and discouragement. When anger's there and discouragement's there, oftentimes greater sin and destruction's not far away if we're not careful. You know, we think about gateway drugs, how drugs can lead to other drugs. Well, anger and discouragement can lead to greater sin very easily. Verse 6, so the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? This is the second time of the way that God addresses sin. He did it with Adam and Eve, remember? He says, where are you? Well, where did you go? Why, Why did you do this? The heart of a broken father. And here to Cain, he says, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? Now, church, this is before Cain kills Abel. God is sending the warning symbol to Cain here. He's trying to get his attention. And this is a great question for us to ask ourselves. Why are we angry? You know, why are we so upset? What is it that is getting us angry? Why are we responding this way? And if we stop and examine that question It could stop us in our tracks and lead us back to the Lord and lead us to the place that God would want us to be. And why is our countenance fallen? Why are we disquieted or discouraged? In Psalms 42, the psalmist asks himself this question, 
Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted in me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. He realizes his countenance has fallen, and he challenges his soul and says, come on, rejoice in the Lord. Come on, get your attention upon the Lord. God is good and hope in God. And we do have a choice in those moments of despair, in those moments of discouragement, in those moments of anger, to turn from anger, turn from discouragement, and turn to the Lord, and turn to rejoicing in Him. That last song that we sang in worship was really rejoicing in God's love in spite of us. And isn't that true? God loves us in spite of us. His grace and His love remains faithful and true in, in our lives. So not focusing on our failures, but focusing upon who the Lord is. Verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you shall rule over it. God is looking to Cain and saying, you have an opportunity right now to get right with me. You have opportunity right now to do well, to offer up your sacrifice in faith, to get your heart right, to get your, your attitude right, to offer your best un, unto the Lord. Sin lies at the door and desires to rule over you. The word lies, it means to crouch. The idea of, is of an animal that's crouching to attack. Have you ever been out hiking in the mountains here and wondered, maybe there's a mountain lion, right? Maybe the only one that's had that thought. Mountain lions are so stealthy. If they wanted to attack, they could attack you before you ever saw them, right? And that's the way sin is. Sin is creeping up on Cain. Here he is angry and discouraged, envious over Abel's sacrifice being accepted. And he needs to be careful. Because if he's not careful, sin is going to overtake him. He's going to give in to sin, and sin's going to rule over him. But God gives an alternative. He says, but you can rule over sin. You can choose to say no to sin. Sometimes as we wrestle with sin, and we give in to sin so frequently, we can feel as if we have no other choice. I have no other option but to sin. I'm a slave to sin. But God tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, that with every temptation, that God is faithful and he has provided a way of escape. Isn't that a great promise? That God will give us a way of escape in those moments of temptation. When you're coming into Colorado Springs, coming south from Denver, there are several exits in Colorado Springs, aren't there? Maybe Northgate could technically be the first exit or Interquest. And you get further down, you get to Academy, you get to Garden of the Gods, you, you keep going, you get to Circle Drive down south. But there's all of these exits, right? All these opportunities to get off of the freeway. Well, church, when we're getting tempted with sin, the way of escape is the first exit. It's the first exit. Don't keep going and wait for another exit. Take the first exit. Here, Cain could have walked away. He could have listened to the voice of God. He could have listened to the warning that was being given to him and chosen to flee from his anger, flee from his jealousy and his envy, 
and choose to do what's right and rule over sin. That way of escape was, was clearly provided for him. We can look back when we choose to sin and go, man, God was faithful. He provided a way of escape. Then also in Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14, we see this amazing promise that God has given to us about not being slaves to sin any longer. I want to back up a little bit and look at Romans 6, 5 through 9. I want to invite you to turn there with me. Let's turn over to Romans chapter 6 and look at verse 5. This is why we're no longer slaves to sin. In verse 5, For we have been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. Verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So we're being challenged, we're being encouraged by this promise from the Lord that we've been crucified with Christ. Our sinful nature was nailed with Christ, and we identify with Christ. We're buried with Christ, and we're risen in newness of life. This has all taken place in our lives. Before we receive Christ as our Savior, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you are a slave to sin. You don't have another option of freedom. But part of what Christ has done for us is he's broken the power of sin to where we're buried with Christ and we're risen in newness of life. So then this is our response to our sinful nature in verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we have to do the math, don't we? We've got to remind our sinful nature, wait a second, you're dead. You're still shouting like you're alive, but you're dead. And I don't have to get into you anymore. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Is there any sin that we're struggling with tonight that we don't believe that we can have victory over? And I know that that's hard because our personal experience says, I keep going back to this. And I know I'm forgiven. And I know the power of sin has been broken. But over time, I keep coming back to this particular struggle to where now I don't even want to try anymore, right? Like there's certain things that we're particularly not very good at. And it's like, why would I do that anymore? I'm not good at that. Why would I pay money to do that? I'm not good at that, right? I'm not good at bowling. The rest of my family is good at bowling. They always beat me growing up at bowling. I'm not going to pay good money to go bowling. Be reminded about how bad I am at bowling. Can I get an amen? Right? And sometimes that's the Christian life. We're like, why would I 
try to overcome anger because I keep giving in to anger? Why would I try to overcome lust because I keep giving in, in to lust? And it sure seems like sin is going to rule over me. And we have to look at the cross once again and be reminded of the power of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And to say, look, I need to yield myself to God. I need to surrender myself to God. Reckon myself uh, to be dead and to be alive to God. Have you ever stopped to consider, what if we stop battling the struggle? We think it's bad now because there's times when we fall into different sin struggles. Well, what if you just go ahead and throw in the towel and say, well, I haven't had any victory over anger, so I'm just going to be angry all the time. I haven't had the victory over lust that I would desire, so I'm just going to be lustful all the time, right? Who knows what we would end up like, right? And sometimes it's hard to see the growth that God has brought into our lives from our own perspective. And from God's perspective and other people's perspective, they go, wow, you have really changed. And there is growth that is taking place in your life. But because God promises a way of escape, and because of what he's done for us on the cross, we don't have to be slaves to sin any longer. We really can rule over sin through the power of Jesus Christ. In verse 8, Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. You imagine this conversation between Cain and Abel. It probably started off pretty mellow. But then it starts to escalate. It appears that Cain really had this in his heart to kill his brother. And that this is his opportunity and he's going to take advantage of the opportunity. What breaks my heart is these guys are brothers. And no doubt they had some good memories together. Even if there were times that they fought growing up. And all of that goes out the window when Cain gets angry, when he gets jealous that Abel's sacrifice is accepted and his is not, and he chooses to murder to kill his, his brother. Unfortunately, with anger, it seems to affect those that we love the most, doesn't it? It's where anger does its greatest damage and the greatest destruction. And for us to step back here and be humbled a little bit and say, wow, this is where anger goes when it's unchecked. And Lord, do a work in my heart. Help me to not go the way of Cain. In verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? So God again comes with questions. These questions are for confession and repentance. God knows exactly what's happened to Abel. He says, where's your brother? I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? And God is emphasizing the relationship that they have with each other. This is your brother. And you see the arrogance inside of Cain where he's like, I don't know where he is. He lies. He knows exactly where he is. He's dead. Cain has killed him. And then he lips off to God. 
he does some trash talking to God. Am I my brother's keeper? Like, am I the one that's got his eye calendar that's supposed to keep track of him? You know? How am I supposed to know where he's supposed to be at at two, two in the afternoon, right? Cain could have responded in repentance, in brokenness before the Lord. We look at another murderer, King David. King David's not where he should be with the Lord. Commits adultery with Bathsheba and then says, I can cover this up. Brings Uriah home from battle, Bathsheba's husband. Encourages Uriah to go and have normal sexual relations with his wife because Bathsheba's pregnant from their adultery. That's going to be his way of covering up. But Uriah won't go sleep with his wife because his fellow warriors are out fighting battle, so he sleeps outside. David realizes that's not going to work, sends Uriah back, sends a note to Joab. says, make sure that you put Uriah in the front line and kill him, knock him off. He kills Uriah. Hides it for a year. God in his love comes to David through Nathan the prophet. Nathan says, there's a rich man in your kingdom, has tons of cattle, has some guests coming, goes to his neighbor who is poor, who had one lamb. And this lamb was loved by the family, was a pet. Says, I want your lamb because I've got a guest and we're gonna take your lamb. David's enraged, he's mad. Says, who is this man? He deserves to die which was not God's just punishment for stealing, laid out in the law. David's enraged, pointing the finger. And then Nathan looks at David and says, you are the man. You are that man. In this story, you're the man. You took Uriah's wife, busted of murder before God. And David's response, as you read it there, in Samuel's account, in David's own writing in Psalms 51, is at that moment he is broken before God. And he knows he sinned against God. That God is the one who gave Uriah life and he took Uriah's life. He committed murder. That he committed adultery. And he's broken in repentance before the Lord. Cain could have heeded God's warning. And now that he has sinned, he could have responded in confession and repentance. And in this area of anger, if the Lord is convicting us or revealing or exposing anger in our lives and especially how it affects our families, we don't want Cain's response. We don't want to go the way of Cain. We want to be broken before the Lord and to agree with God, God, you're right, I'm wrong. I've sinned against you. And then to turn from that sin and to get right with the Lord and to get right with those that we have offended. God's sweet spot is humility and brokenness. What do I mean by that? Is he gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. He's greater than our sin if we will come to him in repentance. But if we don't come to him in repentance and humility, he's going to resist us and he's ultimately going to humble us. How about this question that Cain throws back at God? Am I my brother's keeper? Do you think that God holds us to the standard of loving one another 
caring for one another and challenging one another? Absolutely. That's what God calls us to, to be in relationship with each other, to look after one another. Ultimately, we're each responsible before God, but we care for each other and we challenge one another. Verse 10, and he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Cain feels like he silences his brother. He's not going to have to deal with his goody two-shoe brother anymore and his sacrifices that are accepted by God. Abel cries out in the moment that he's murdered, and his blood continues to cry out before God, and that cry will not be silenced. And you need to hear that. I know that for some, you have a family member that was murdered. You've been a victim of, of great violence, and you've wondered, is my cry been silenced? Has anybody heard my cry? And absolutely, God hears your cry. And God emphasizes the blood. Why the blood? Because life is valuable. What keeps us living is blood pumping through our veins. And if our blood were spilled out upon the ground, we would die just like Abel. And God's the one who gives life, and we're created in God's image. So when murder takes place, that goes before God. And God hears that cry, and ultimately God will make it right. In Psalms, or excuse me, Numbers 35, 33, God says this about the children of Israel going into the promised land. He says, So you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defies the land, and no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. So God's keeping track of the blood of innocent people that's shed upon the land. And eventually, the land gets to the place where it vomits the people out. And that's interesting, isn't it? So all of this senseless violence that's taking place and murder and, and people's lives being taken from them, that blood spills out on the land and God sees and he notices it. Also in Hebrews 12, verse 24, this is worth writing down. This is what God says about the blood of Abel. Hebrews 12, verse 24, it says, To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of the sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So Abel's blood speaks, and Jesus' blood speaks. Remember when Christ rose from the dead and he's talking with two of the disciples on the road to Emmaus? He took them through the Old Testament scriptures and says, This points of me, this points to me, this points to me. Jesus was killed by who? His brethren. The Jews were the ones who orchestrated things for the crucifixion, even though the Romans were involved. It was his own brethren that ultimately were the ones behind his, his crucifixion. Just like Abel was killed by his own brother. Abel is the first martyr. Could we agree on that in Scripture? So the Bible refers to Abel as being righteous because of his faith. The reason that Abel is killed is because he's committed to God. And his brother doesn't like it. He doesn't like the fact that Abel is committed to the Lord and walking with the Lord. Jesus in Matthew 25 calls 
Abel righteous and uses it in reference to he himself being crucified. So Abel is a martyr, is a man walking in righteousness that's killed by his brother, pointing to the ultimate righteous one, the one that's far more righteous than Abel. And when Jesus died, his blood speaks. And the blood of Jesus could bring us into a new covenant with God, a new contract with God, where God forgives us of our sins, and we have a blood contract with God, initiated by God, initiating me God sending his own son. To me, that's fascinating. Here we've got this broken family, this broken situation, and Jesus is pointing to himself even through that brokenness. Verse 11, so now you are cursed from the earth, he's speaking to Cain, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. Consequence of taking Abel's life. You're going to have a hard time farming, and you're going to be a fugitive. You're going to be a vagabond. You're going to be on the run. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. I always know that I'm not in a place of repentance if I'm upset about the consequences of my own sin. If I'm having a conversation with God and others going, this really isn't fair. This is a a bum rap that I'm getting. God, you're laying too big of a heavy trip on me. God, you're being too hard on me. Hey, why are you judging me? You're a sinner too, right? Why are you all up in my grill? I haven't gotten to the place of really owning my sin or being in a place of of repentance. This is not where we want to be when God calls us out on sin. My punishment is greater than I can bear. I think God's being pretty gracious. God could have offed Cain right here. God could have said, all right, it's time for some justice. You took Abel's life, I'm going to take yours. And God says, look, farming's going to be hard for you and you're going to be a vagabond. And Cain's like, oh, that's such an unfair punishment, right? That's way too hard. That's more than I can bear. Verse 14, surely you've driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it'll happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. So here I am running for my life, and if someone finds me, they're going to kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. God's amazing grace. God protects Cain's life. It says, you're worried about people killing you in vengeance? So if anybody kills you, then vengeance sevenfold is going to come upon them. In verse 16, then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. Is Cain's choice. The way of Cain rejects God's warning The way of Cain gives in to sin. The way of Cain does not respond in repentance, accepting consequences, and then goes from the presence of the Lord. Where does he go to dwell? He goes to dwell in the land of Nod. Nod literally means place of wandering. When we flee from the presence of God, we go to the land of Nod. We go to the land of wandering. 
Peter said to the Lord, when Jesus asked, are you going to flee too? Are you going to depart from me as well? What did Peter respond and say, where else are we going to go? Because you alone have the words of life. May we never be deceived to think a life apart from the Lord is better than a life with the Lord. Amen? There's nothing good apart from the Lord. It's just going to lead to wandering. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. The age-old question is, where did Cain get his wife? Right? It's a good question. I think the answer lies in the fact that Adam lived 930 years and definitely had more children than Cain and Abel and Seth. These are the ones that God focuses on, is Cain and Abel and Seth. But they had more children, and so most likely Cain is marrying a sibling at this, at this point. And there wasn't the problems that we see today with intermarrying and what takes place in the gene pool when there's intermarriage. So gets married, has Enoch. Enoch goes and builds a city. What does an evolutionary worldview tell you about ancient man? That we're Neanderthals, that we're cavemen, no intelligence. What does the Bible tell you about ancient man? That we're created by God with a high degree of intelligence. And we're going to see right away that there is very rapid advancement. Archaeology points to an intelligent ancient man, not this Neanderthal type of uh, perspective. So Enoch is able to build a city. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begot Mahula, Mahula begot Methuselah, and Methuselah begot Lamech. Irad, his name means fugitive or wild donkey. Mahula literally means blot out Yah, and that refers to Yahweh. In essence, wipe out the name of God. So in naming their child, they're saying we want to wipe out the remembrance of God. Methuselah literally means they are dead who are of God. So you're dead if you're of God. Lamech means poor and lowly. So even from what they're naming their kids, you see them departing from God. Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of the one was Adah. The name of the second was Zilhah. The first mention of polygamy in the scripture comes from the descendants of Cain. And Abah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the harp and the flute. So you see the building of a city. You see really being able to develop cattle to the point of it being a business. And then you see developing musical instruments. What's wrong with this is we don't see any relationship with God or devoting this to God's glory. So it wasn't that any of these endeavors were for God's glory. And as for Zilhah, she also bore Tubal Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal Cain was Nema. So now we see the amazing use of iron and bronze, and no doubt there would be the crafting of weapons through iron and bronze. If you're able to work in craftsmanship, you're going to make tools, you're going to make weapons. So you see this incredible industry that's taking place in ancient man. Then Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zilhah, hear my voice, wives of 
Zamek, listen to my speech, for I've killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. So he's bragging. He's like, this young man hurt me, he wounded me, so, so I killed him. And he goes the, the way of Cain as well. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech, 77-fold. He wants the protection that was given to Cain and then some, doesn't he? He's assuming God's protection on him in his violence that he committed. 70 times 7, does it ring a bell? Matthew 18, 22, Jesus told us to forgive 70 times 7. The lesson there is to not keep score. You know, don't do the math of 70 times 7 and then go, okay, you stepped over the line, you know. I forgive you for the fifth hundred times, so you're out. Verse 25, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God had anointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. So God blesses them, and here comes Seth. And what are the words that are uttered? Is God has anointed another seed for me. She's going back to the promise of Genesis 3, 15, that God would give her seed victory over Satan and his dominion over them. And this is exactly what took place because it's through the descendants, the lineage of Seth, that Jesus Christ comes. Church, this is amazing when you stop and think about this. I mean, do you have greater hopes for the first family in Scripture? I mean, if you had never read the Bible before and you read about the very first family that God created, would you anticipate that their legacy would be homicide? If you were God writing the scriptures, is that how you would put the story together? Most families in the Bible are all messed up. All kinds of crazy messed up. By the time we get through just the book of Genesis, we're going to read about every kind of dysfunction in a family that you can possibly manage, right? So if you're discouraged about your family, be encouraged, right? You're in biblical company of family, right? And here's this black backdrop of a very broken family where it would be very easy for God to give up on them. And say, all right, Adam and Eve kind of started the thing off with willful rebellion. Cain goes to murder. So, all right, let's be done with those guys and raise up some other family. But God in his grace gives them Seth. And through the descendants of Seth would ultimately lead to Jesus Christ who would die for our sins. God, from the very beginning, is showing us the gospel and showing us his grace. In verse 26, And as for Seth... To him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Seth has a son who's named Enosh, and something happens spiritually in the time of Enosh that hadn't happened prior, and people start calling upon the name of the Lord. They start seeing their need for the Lord. And they start seeing their need to be in relationship with the Lord. Now, we don't have the details of what happened. But it seems as though that Enosh had something to do with it. The son of Seth. That through this broken family, 
that here comes this grandson, Enosh, that has a heart for God, that's in relationship with God, that's sharing about who God is, and people's hearts are stirred to want to call upon the name of the Lord. God's grace, God's goodness. It's never too late. God wants to rebuild a broken family, a dysfunctional family, a family that's filled with sin and anger and even murder. So as we put the pieces of this chapter together, I think there's a couple of things for us to reflect on. First is the way of Cain is very real. And God is warning us through Cain, man, be careful. Be careful to the warning that God gives. As many of you know, I've been working on an old pickup truck, a 1978 Chevy, and I was able to take it hunting, which was really fun, at at least drive it to Pueblo, where I met with my buddies, and then we took his truck into the mountains. But I was happy my truck made it to Pueblo. Uh, (laughs) But as I was on the way down to to Pueblo, driving in the early morning hours, all of a sudden, my horn just got stuck on. So I'm like halfway dead asleep, and it literally just, and I jump, and I'm like, what is that? And I'm like, oh, and then I adjusted the cap on the old steering wheel. It has this cap, and then all of a sudden, the horn went off. Now, my horn has not been working since I got the truck. Like, I can't get the horn to work, and then all of a sudden, it decided to be all Lazarus on me, and... <laughs> And the first night of the hunting trip, we're sleeping, and we kind of, Pueblo was the home base, and we go up in the mountains, and sleeping in my friend's tent trailer, and his brother was in the tent trailer, and we'd gone to sleep, and I was tired, went to bed early after a day of, of hunting, dead asleep, and then all of a sudden, ah, and my buddy Chris, he jumps out of the tent, and I had my earplugs on, and I'm all disoriented, and I get outside, and I'm like, is that my truck? And sure enough, my, my horn had gotten stuck once again, so I just took the cap out, and that, that solved, solved the problem. But the, the truck was giving a false alarm. There was no reason for the horn to go off. Well, let me tell you, church, God does not give false alarms, okay? And when he is honking the horn, when he's saying, hey, sin is at your door, stay away from her, stay away from him, Back off, turn off the TV, shut down the internet, walk away. We need to heed that, that it's very real. And God in his love's trying to save us from destruction. And then when it does come to those times when we do sin and we will, we don't want to be defensive. We don't want to get angry at God. We don't want to get upset about the consequences. We want to walk like David and be concerned about our relationship with God. What has this sin done to my relationship with God? How has this sin hurt relationship with others? But then there's another character in the story. It's Abel. We kind of tend to focus on Cain, but the New Testament focuses on Abel and says that Abel points to Christ. And Jesus' blood was, was shed for us. And maybe you're in that place of, you're not perfect, but you're walking with the Lord. And you're starting to receive some persecution and maybe from your family. Just continue to be faithful with the Lord. God uses the testimony of Abel throughout all of history to say, hey, this is an example for us to follow. Let's pray together and enter into communion. Jesus, we're humbled by Cain. And we're humbled by the reality of sin in our own hearts. And when anger gets the, the best of us, 
Lord, you're so faithful to provide a way of escape. And when you're warning us loud and clear, may we heed that warning. May we respond to it. Lord, where we're so discouraged and wrestling with sin, where we don't think that there could be victory, would you help us in our unbelief as we look at the cross to be reminded that we're buried with Christ and risen in newness of life? Jesus, we thank you that you are the ultimate martyr. You're the ultimate righteous one that was crucified for for our sin. So Lord, would you take your word and just plant it deep within our hearts and we love you in Jesus' name.